I want to welcome you here this afternoon to a seminar on how to build wealth and prosperity using the principles of shalom, biblical principles of shalom. I'd like to start with a word of prayer because we're going to look into some scripture and we're going to think a little deep about some of the scripture thinking. So let's pray as we begin, all right? Dear Lord, this afternoon as we think about this wonderful, exciting theme of shalom, guide our thinking and our understanding. May we take from this place an energy to serve you in a a renewed purpose, I pray. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be here this afternoon. I'm glad you're here as well. This topic, I've, I've just been waiting and waiting, and I can't wait any longer. It's a pretty exciting topic in Scripture, I'll tell you. Yeah, well, I, I've, I want to begin with a, a Bible verse, a memory verse. Let's do that. Just one phrase of Psalm chapter 34, verse 14. Seek peace, and the Hebrew word is shalom. That's where we're going to focus on the Hebrew ideas. Seek shalom and pursue it. And I've taken the liberty to do a paraphrase at the bottom. Search for shalom. And then my commentary in parentheses, it's not that easy to find. So we've got to look for it. Okay, it's not automatic anymore. Search for it. And if you find it, chase it because it's going to try to get away. That's really kind of the, that's the Hebrew kind of uh, meaning in all of this. Look for it and then chase it. It doesn't come natural to human beings anymore. That wasn't God's original intent. But at least now, and and David the psalmist understood this. Actually, it wasn't only David because we see evidence from this passage that the Apostle Peter was a student of the Old Testament. 1 Peter 3, verse, uh, well, we'll come to it in a minute. 1 Peter chapter 3, he quotes from this passage. And he says the same thing, only in the Greek, it puts it in the Greek, but it says the same which is evidence for me that the ancient Hebrew thinking came forward and and was in in the experience of the disciples and the apostles. Yeah, they were students of Scripture. Jesus helped them be that, be those kinds of students. I'm going to share with you just for a few minutes some resources. I've got some examples on the table here, and I want to uh, invite you to come up and take some of the brochures and flyers. Over the last dozen years or so, I've committed to develop some resources available for students in schools of business, uh, Christian schools of business. And we have some examples here. There are other scholars doing the same, but um, I've decided to make a contribution to for students and, and teachers with a perspective that is perhaps unusual out in the marketplace of Christian business scholars, and that perspective uh, comes from my own Seventh-day Adventist background. So over the last few years, uh, I've worked with some folks and put together some materials 
This is a textbook that we now use in principles of management class. Uh, a brand new book that's coming out literally today. I'm, the editor's telling me that's, that's for use in a business ethics course. And then a series of publications uh, published by Andrews University Press, small monographs that can be used by students and teachers at the, in higher education. Those monographs are also useful for those in practice. Uh, several articles, I brought some examples and you can take, you can take those, the articles, uh, as long as they last. Sabbath, the Theological Roots of Sustainable Development just came out a few weeks ago in the Journal of Biblical Integration and Business. A couple of years ago, an article on efficiency from the scripture point of view. An article, Teaching the Gospel from Agency Theory in the Bible. And then uh, last year, an article about Shalom, published in the Journal of Religion and Business Ethics. And you've noticed I've got the link here. If you want my PowerPoints, click on the link. It'll take you right to the article if you want to read it. I also have a blog for Christian scholars, but it's open to anyone in business who wants to think about some of the challenges that Christian managers face in the marketplace. So if you'd like uh, the PowerPoint slide set or copies of published articles, uh, if you'd like a reading list, I can supply that as well. And if you'd be willing to share with me stories that I can then in turn share with students, stories about Christians in business, I would love to hear from you. And of course, you, I would invite you to connect with me on Facebook and LinkedIn if you'd like. I would welcome that. Okay, so much for that. You ready? All right. Something I've noticed over the years is that Christians, and I don't think Seventh-day Adventists are any different in this regard, we sometimes take a silo approach to studying the Bible. I'm going to learn everything I can about baptism, right? And so we're going to look up in a concordance of the word baptism or baptize and, or uh, stories about baptisms and so forth, and we're going to drill down deeply just on that one topic. And then we say, well, I want to study about the topic of, and you can fill in the blank, Someone name a topic that you might be interested in studying the scripture about. Excuse me? Witnessing. Exactly. That's a great topic. And so we're going to do the same process. We're going to drill down deeply and find examples of people in scripture witnessing, like Philip, right? And we're going to look at passages that encourage us to be disciple makers and so forth, fishers of men. We're going to study that deeply, right? The Holy Spirit, we're going, to, we're going to study that topic deeply. And that, that's fine. There are some limitations to using that silo approach, though. When it comes to business, and what does the Bible say about business, that silo approach only gets us so far. Yeah. The Bible doesn't talk about the Internet. It doesn't talk about investing in stocks and bonds and all the complicated things in business these days. So you don't get too far when you start diving, trying to go deep onto one subject. And what happens is this silo approach also unintentionally results in us missing some connections between the subject we're studying and some really big topics that go from Genesis through Revelation. Not always do we miss these things. 
It's the biblical themes that provide the connective tissue, if I could use a metaphor of, from a human anatomy, the connective tissue that connect all of these things that we'd like to study of God's Word and God's will for our life. It's the themes that connect those things to help make sense in the bigger picture. Some questions in business are not simple to answer. Yeah. I had someone contact me not too, many, not too long ago saying, I've got a retirement fund, and it's, there's a mutual fund that's kind of managing a portfolio of stocks and bonds and so forth, and, and I'm worried that one of those stocks might be in a pig farm. Should I keep my retirement in that portfolio if there's a pig farm hidden in there somewhere? Wow, okay, never thought about that question before. That's not a simple question to answer, right? <laughs> and the scripture certainly doesn't address that particular question. But the biblical themes will inform our conversation as we think through the complicated issues. I mentioned the biblical themes, these grand themes. Let me tell you about how these were found, identified, these particular themes. Over the last several years, as I've been studying the Scripture, partly in development of some of these materials, I've noticed that there's a cluster of Scriptures that talk about our conduct, right? guidance for our conduct. And I also noticed another group of Scriptures, different ones, that describe the character of God. And thirdly, there's a third cluster of Scriptures that identify Jesus Christ and His work. I was in... South Africa, waiting my turn to give a speech at a conference. Way up in, I was way up in the top of the, the amphitheater, waiting my turn, and suddenly at that moment, it kind of all fell into place. These three sets of passages, they're scores of passages, right? But these three different, and where they intersect, there are several themes that emerge that are common to all three. I'm going to give you one example today from Shalom. Shalom is one of those. Okay, Here are those themes that emerged. And if you'd like the document that uh, has the scripture passages for all those themes, just send me an email. Okay, Creation is one of those themes that starts in Genesis. Creation is mentioned other places in scripture. In fact, by the time we get to Revelation, it is now recast into a recreation. But creation... Theme comes up in Exodus also, where God creates the nation, brings out of Egypt and creates this nation of Israel. Creation, holiness is a theme. Covenant. As I begin to read Bible scholars on this, I begin to realize that some, some Bible scholars uh, have, have identified <laughs> these same themes. Yeah. What was interesting to me, though, I, I teach business. What was interesting to me is these themes have something really important for business. And that's when I got really excited, when I began to see, understand. We got this shalom, Sabbath, justice, righteousness, truth, wisdom, loving kindness, and redemption. And one could argue, as I do in my new book, one could argue that the theme of the great controversy or the cosmic conflict theme is an overarching theme where all of these other themes intersect in Scripture. Today, we're going to talk about shalom only. 
uh, back in April, I think it was, I was privileged to go to the Southern Union ASI meeting and presented a seminar on the great controversy theme and what implications there are for business. Same idea with Shalom. These grand themes are grounded in the writings of Moses. We see them from Genesis to Revelation. They're the basis of the prophets' messages. The themes are mentioned in groups over 500 times. In groups, explicitly mentioned. That's not to even account for the number of times when they're implicitly referred to or inferred. 500, over 500 times mentioned in groups. They're mentioned in groups in over 80% of the Bible books. These themes are interwoven, interrelated, interdependent. It's like they they almost defy us to pick the most important one because they're all interconnected. Well, where, where two or more themes are mentioned in the same Bible verse or same small group of verses, two or three verses of the scripture, yeah. Shalom might be mentioned with righteousness, for instance, in the same Bible verse, yeah. In fact, there is a verse in Psalms that mentions that the work of righteousness is shalom, and righteousness is one of those other themes. Shalom is interdependent with creation. It was at creation when Shalom was first invented for this earth, if you might might say it that way. God created Shalom when he created this earth. This is where Shalom begins. And by by the time we get to Revelation and the recreation of the new earth, there's imagery, symbolism, that is carried forward from Eden to Eden, the new Eden. Shalom to Shalom. Shalom as a theme is interdependent with the theme of covenant in Scripture. It is covenant, which I'll show you in just a couple of minutes, that is designed to foster an abundant life. Shalom is also interdependent with Sabbath. In fact, I'm of the opinion now that when we talk about Sabbath, we ought to say Sabbath hyphen Shalom, because these two things are really closely identified in Scripture. Some say Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. May you have Shalom on Sabbath. And there's some deep meaning with that. Justice is interrelated with Shalom. We sometimes see people marching down the street of a city if there's been some injustice occur. And they're carrying signs and the, the words plastered on the big signs. No justice, comma, no what? Peace. Yeah. That's a biblical idea, actually. There is no shalom if we don't have justice. Shalom is related to the great controversy also. In fact, we we could think about the great cosmic conflict as a contest over what it means to experiencing flourishing life. What does it mean? Lucifer has his description. God, his 
Notice what Ellen White says, Fundamentals of Christian Education. Every instructor will exert an influence to lead his pupils to study God's Word and to obey His law. He will direct their minds to the contemplation of eternal interests and open before them vast fields of thought, grand and ennobling themes, which the most vigorous intellect may put forth all its powers to grasp. When I saw that, I said, okay, this, I'm a teacher. I can't, this is very categorical. Every instructor will do this. So I said, okay, let's do this. Let's find some themes. The Bible, in the Bible, a boundless field is open for the imagination. Now, I'll tell you, in these themes, this is so true. It's amazing. The student will come from a contemplation of its great, of its grand themes, from associations of its lofty imagery, more pure and elevated in thought and feeling. There is nothing so ennobling and invigorating as the study of the great themes of salvation. And shalom, by the way, is one of those themes related to redemption. If occupied with commonplace matters only to the exclusion of grand and lofty themes, the mind will become dwarfed and enfeebled. If never required to grapple with difficult problems or put to the stretch to comprehend important truths, it will, after a time, almost lose the power of growth. These grand and lofty themes are important to us. These themes are really the elements of God's character. We see scripture evidence, explicit evidence of that. But we are called to emulate those. And when I realized that, I said, okay, there's got to be, it can't be just emulating these themes when I'm sitting in church. It can't be that, right? Or maybe Wednesday night prayer meeting. It can't be just that. And it can't be just, okay, as a father and a husband in the home, I, it can't be just that I have to emulate God's character when I'm at home with my wife and family. It can't be limited just to that, to leave Monday through Friday work time kind of untouched with this, you know, where I'm going with this. If we're going to emulate these elements of God's character, it has to be throughout our life, including the life at work, in business. There are times when it is not acceptable to talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ at work. Certain situations, certain the publicly traded for-profit firms, many, many times, it's not acceptable. So what do you do? What do you talk about? When you promote these principles, advocate on behalf of them in your organization and integrate them into your own habits, you are telling about Jesus Christ just as surely as when you mention his name. These, in fact, are the elements of Jesus' character. When you can't mention his name, you can talk about flourishing. In fact, there are secular people that even use the, the word flourishing these days. Yeah. Flourishing is a concept that many people under, get the grasp. It's a complicated idea, but they seem to grab, grab onto it. I believe that these themes represent an entering wedge. You know, we often talk about the medical work as the entering wedge. I think the world of business can also be an entering wedge when we champion these themes with people around us. If you become known as a champion for the Hebrew concept of truth, which we're not going to talk about today, 
which really means faithfulness, when tested. That's the ancient idea behind it. If you become, if that's part of your reputation in your for-profit organization, that's going to open some doors for conversations sometimes. The same with shalom, I believe. Let's dig a little deeper into the theme of shalom. Well, shalom, we could translate that word Instead of peace, we could say prosperity. In fact, sometimes it is translated into English as prosperity. Uh, by the way, I'm using the word shalom, and there is a cluster of words. Your handout actually shows some examples. It's not complete. The handout is not complete. There's another dozen or so other words that are used, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that are sometimes translated as prosperity, sometimes translated as the word uh, well-being or flourishing, uh, to go well with you, that's another way it's translated into English. We're going to learn this afternoon that prosperity in the Bible, and shalom is the dominant word that is used, but it's not the only. Prosperity in the Bible is an all-encompassing idea that includes all dimensions of life. Not just economic wealth, but I need to quickly hasten to say it also includes the process of building economic wealth. Yeah. Prosperity in the Bible is inseparable from the covenant relationship that God designs for us. And prosperity has in vision all levels of society, from a family unit to a community to a nation and even internationally, all levels of society. Here are some of those passages. Just couple of examples where I begin to see that our conduct, the theme of shalom, of our conduct, overlaps the, the passage of Scripture that identifies Jesus Christ, which also overlaps statements about God's character. Here's the one from Psalms 34, seek peace and pursue it. That's what we should do. We should seek after shalom. And then in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And, of course, the famous one from Isaiah, identifying the Messiah, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. And then it goes on to say that there will be no end of the increase of his government or of Shalom. This is an important point about the Messiah's role here. And if shalom is to be an all-encompassing idea, then the role of the Messiah is not just a spiritual action or a spiritual role. It encompasses, in fact, all of life. Yeah, all of life. In Isaiah 54, here we've got, here's an example of two themes in the same passage. My friend who asked the, asked the question here, Michael. My loving kindness, actually that's a third, <laughs> third theme. My loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant, that's the second theme, of peace. Here it's called the covenant of peace will not be shaken. Here's the character of God described. Three, three themes in one verse. Yeah. But I found this interesting that, that the relationship that God designs for us, the covenant, is called a covenant of shalom. Barith Shalom. And Isaiah is not the only prophet who uses this phrase, by the way. 
I think uh, Zechariah and Malachi also. Uh, I think uh, Moses also uses that phrase, covenant of peace. We're going to learn that shalom and the broader idea of prosperity is multidimensional. It's not just money. <laughs> prosperity is not just money, not just your bank account. It is multi-generational, and it is communal as well as individual. These are three important uh, dimensions of prosperity. We're going to take a few minutes to also talk about the wealth part of shalom. God's plan for humans at creation was to experience a complete flourishing life of well-being in all dimensions our relationship with God, our physical health, our social harmony relationships, right? All of that was envisioned when God created. That was his plan. I've already highlighted the part about Brewith Shalom. Uh, I've already talked about the Messiah's role. The role of the Messiah, as I understand it now, was not to be limited to just spiritual reconciliation. If you read the New Testament, and Apostle Paul is especially... The whole creation is, in, is uh, envisioned for the Messiah's work to be consummated when he returns second time. Here's another memory verse. Psalms 119, 165. Those who love thy law have great shalom. Now here's the formula, if you will, in a short, crisp uh, fashion that says... You want to experience shalom? Learn to love God's law. That's how it works. Got an article up here if you want to take with you um, about the uh, ethical religious uh, framework for shalom that, that goes into every one of the Ten Commandments to show how each commandment has a relationship to economic prosperity. I paraphrase this by saying the community that loves the principles of covenant relationships, the law, will have a flourishing life in all dimensions. That was the plan. It, that was the plan at, in, in, uh, in Eden, for sure, before the Ten Commandments were given. But then when God brought Israel out of Egypt, that was the plan again. I'll do a little comparison here in just a couple of minutes about uh, coming out of Egypt in Leviticus 18, it says, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. Here's the, the word live is making a reference to this experience. It's not just physical life as opposed to physical death. It's life in all dimensions, flourishing life. Deuteronomy 5, 29. Here, this, this is Moses laying the groundwork for understanding about this idea of shalom. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments. So here's the, here's the spiritual foundation, if you will, for shalom. Okay, it starts with our relationship with God. And here's the result, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. Here's a hint of the multi-generational dimension here, by the way. Following these principles of the commandments, there's a design in these commandments. These are not just ten random things to, to do or not to do, right? When I, when I was growing up, I was just thinking, these are, these are just ten things we're not supposed to do, you know? 
kind of random. Oh, no, these are all interrelated. When you really begin to understand the deep nature and the spiritual nature of the Ten Commandments, these are all interrelated with this goal of experiencing shalom. Deuteronomy 6.18, do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Here's another reference to following the Ten Commandments. That it may be well with you. There's the promise of the shalom. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. Here's the psalmist talking about this, following the principles of covenant relationship. The result, flourishing life. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. Now here's, here's Solomon abstracting this very same idea, following the principles of the covenant, the highway of the upright. In the scripture, by the way, there's this imagery of walking, taking a journey, going on a highway. That is how we live our covenant relationships in in a social context. It's just imagery to say, what's your life like when you're with other people? The highway of the upright. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. Now here's the opposite of a flourishing life. And here's the one from Peter who picks up the same idea, quoting from Psalm 34. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Shalom is a multidimensional idea. Spiritual well-being, the foundation. Social harmony, social well-being. International political harmony. Physical health. And not to be completely forgotten is economic well-being also. Following the covenant principles was designed for the experiencing of full, true prosperity. And when I use the word prosperity, I'm not thinking about it only in an economic sense. You cannot think about it only economically if you understand the scripture thinking. It's a flourishing life in all dimensions. That's prosperity. Yeah. So there are several passages. Someone have a Bible? They could read for us Psalm chapter... 1, verses 1 to 3. Look that up on your iPhone, maybe. And read that out for us. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. I promise that you need to bring your Bibles, so we're going to use them right now. I believe it's true that this passage does actually does not use the shalom word, but it's describing the shalom experience. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. go. Following the principles of covenant relationships leads to flourishing. And here the psalmist is a very poetic approach of a tree planted by water and the flourishing of the tree. It's an amazing passage. How about Psalm chapter 4 verse 8? 4 verse 8. Yes, sir. Go ahead and read that. At day's end, I'm ready for sound sleep. For you, God, have put my life back together. Okay, that's very interesting. 
That's an interesting version of Scripture. Yeah. Here the idea of shalom is used, or the word is used, shalom. But it's about safety. When I, when I can go home and sleep at night and know that I am safe, I have shalom. You know, the idea of shalom can, can be experienced even when you're on your deathbed, according to the Scripture. A person near death can have shalom. Yeah. Uh, we usually think of, uh, what do we usually say is the opposite of peace? Right, war. Actually, in Scripture, that's not the opposite of shalom. Sometimes war is used to recover shalom. In fact, it's not the opposite. There is another thing that is the opposite of shalom, which I'm going to share with you here. Excuse me? Um, no, it's actually something else. Uh, justice is one dimension. Physical health and fertility. Social harmony. These are all dimensions of shalom. And there are, there are others as well, but these are, seem to be dominant ones. Let's see here. Here, let's read the one from Proverbs 3, verse 2. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and abundant welfare. There's the shalom word. Will they give you? So here it's stated in a slightly different way. How do you get to a flourishing life following the principles of covenant relationships? When the children of Israel were in Egypt... They were actually not initially, they went to Egypt for safety and shalom. <laughs> but eventually a new pharaoh came to power, and a few hundred years later, they were in a position of misery, complete misery in all dimensions, all dimensions. God brought them out of Egypt so that they could experience shalom in all of its dimensions. They were being oppressed in Egypt. And they were brought out free from oppression. The idea of disease is implied in the, in the conversation about uh, their experience in Egypt. When they were brought out, they were promised, you will not have these same diseases. Yeah, physical health. They were in bondage. And eventually, the promise, the, the prophetic statements by Moses were that the nation would be a world leader. Yeah. They would ascend to a position of dominance as a nation. That's an element of shalom. Their opportunity for worship was limited, but the opportunity for worship was restored in the Exodus experience. They were in a position of economic poverty, and they were brought into a position where their economic prosperity was promised. Their unfaithfulness to God was described in terms of these elements and a few more that wouldn't fit on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is the famous section of Deuteronomy, the promises and the curses section. The promises are of promises of shalom. The, curse, the so-called curses really are the, the natural consequence of not being faithful to covenant relationships. Here's what you should expect to experience. In fact, some of these things did happen later on in the experience of Israel as a nation. 
uh, if you send me a, your, an email, I'll, I'll mail you this um, PowerPoint, and you can, at your leisure, take a look at some of these passages. Psalm 23 does not actually use the word shalom, just like Psalm 1 does not use the word. But who could turn to that right now? Psalm 23. Let's read a few of those famous, well, you might probably know it by heart now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. This is a description of shalom. Uh, who has found Psalm 23? Go ahead, Brom. What a poetic description of a flourishing life. Shalom. The word is not used, but the description is clear. This is God's plan for us, His desire for us. The question, is prosperity primarily for us to enjoy or for those who come after us? Well, Scripture's pretty clear. It's multi-generational. You can't forget your own needs, your own generation's needs, but prosperity, in order to be true prosperity, must span the generations. You can't, to say it another way, you can't say you're prosperous unless your grandchildren are experiencing shalom. Yeah, that, that just kind of expanded my brain when I saw that passage of Scripture. The grand, okay, we're skipping a generation here, but no, we're not just skipping it, we're we're lengthening the scope, the perspective on prosperity. How about Deuteronomy 4, verse 40? Who can look that one up? And who can look up Deuteronomy 5, verse 29? All right. With their children forever. Here We're talking about the promise of shalom, but not just for that generation. It's for the next generation actually going on into the future, forever, yeah. <laughs> and Deuteronomy 440, who has that one? Yes, go ahead, sir. Obediently live by his rules and commands, which I'm giving you today, so that you'll live well and your children after you. Oh, you'll live a long time in the land that God, your uh, God, has given you. Yeah, yeah. Some people think the, the living a long time doesn't necessarily relive to relate to length of a lifespan of a person, but rather the generations would live on and on and on into the future. It's multi-generational. I see in this an amazing plan of God to curb our narrow self-interests. If we're thinking not just about my retirement, to just use an economic dimension for a minute, or my welfare, but I'm also thinking of my grandchildren's welfare and their children's welfare, that moves me out of my own narrow self-interest. It has to. Can you imagine a society if that was prevalent way of thinking? <laughs> if we're thinking about the... the two generations from now and what we do today and the impact that we have on two generations from now. Wow, that could transform society. We wouldn't have debt. We wouldn't have debt. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, we can talk about national debt. That's right. Whew. 
<laughs> is prosperity primarily a community experience or is it an individual experience? Ah. Well, actually, there are scriptures that mention both. Yeah. Deuteronomy 4.40, I think we just read that, refers to the community. Malachi 3, verses 9 through 12, this is talking about bring all the tithes, right? If you read that whole passage, it's the whole community, not just an individual. I've heard some preachers talk about tithing and refer to Malachi and all the blessings are going to come to you if you pay your tithe. Actually, this is a promise to the nation for tithing. And that's, that's the whole point of tithing. To care for those who are at the margins of society. True, true prosperity also is an individual matter. Yeah. We read the passage from Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 about the person who is faithful to covenant promises and how that person will flourish as well. It's both. But scholars, at least the ones I've read thus far, several of them say it's individual and community focused, but it's primarily community. That's the dominant perspective of Scripture. If you want prosperity, work for the community's good, not just your own good. Not to forget your own needs, because individual prosperity, you can never separate that from community prosperity, ultimately. These are interrelated, interdependent. But the focus of Scripture tends to be towards, at least the dominant perspective, is on community. Sure. Yeah. Well, from a, from a shalom point of view, our stewardship is not just financial. <laughs> the other dimensions, sure, yeah. Where God has given us shared leadership responsibility for how we develop this experience in our, in our community together. So we, together we can experience some of these blessings. It goes far beyond, I better lay aside a few dollars to give to a worthy cause, which is also stewardship. But stewardship in the shalom way of thinking is much broader and deeper. Yeah. Each citizen is expected in the scripture way of thinking to contribute to the prosperity experienced by all. So there's this interconnection. A community experiences prosperity when those who are at the margins are also involved. Margins meaning the poor, the disabled, I'm going to talk for a couple of minutes about this idea of blessing, to bless someone. We have stories of blessing in the Scripture. Uh, Isaac and Jacob, remember that famous story. The passing of the inheritance, right? The transfer of the inheritance to the eldest son was not simply an economic transaction where now the oldest son gets ownership of the flocks and the herds. Oh, no, it was much, much deeper and bigger than that. It was a transfer of both the economic power and the moral power to cooperate with God in developing or realizing these promised blessings of shalom. Yeah. 
so that the next generation, this is part of that multi-generational perspective. People would greet each other in ancient times by saying, when they would see each other in the morning, they would say, Shalom. We would say, good morning. Or as some of my students say as we pass on the sidewalk, hey, <laughs> Shalom is a way to greet. What does this mean? Well, we're, we're basically saying, may you have the blessings of Shalom. Actually, it means, may we <laughs> have the blessings of Shalom. Not you individually by yourself, no, us. That's a communal thing. When we say Shalom to someone, it's a prayer in ancient times, it's a prayer for God's creative work of, of creation. In fact, the Shalom experience is seen as a, as a powerful act of God through the community's effort, of course. When we say shalom to someone in ancient times, we're saying, remember the bigger goal we have here today is not just about you, not just about me, it's about us. It's about God's plan for us. And implicit, it's a reminder or an admonition. When you say greet someone with shalom, you're saying, remember, be a champion of shalom today, not just for yourself, but for us. Notice this communal emphasis in Psalm 122. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. All the people in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem as a center of government. May they prosper who love you. And when the Israelites were taken captive to Babylon... This is what Jeremiah told them. This is amazing. Seek. There's that word seek. Look for it. Chase after it. Seek the shalom of the city where I have taken you into exile. Whoa. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> Work for the prosperity of the Babylonians. What? Are you serious? Pray that the Lord, pray for the Lord on his behalf, for in its shalom, what? You will have shalom. So the self-interest of the Israelites is not forgotten here. But pray for the shalom of the larger community of which you are now a part, which you had, you didn't have any control over this. You were taken away, right? Pray for, their, pray for the shalom for them also. Should we seek the welfare of competitors? Are you kidding? Actually, in their book, Coopetition, Brandenburg and Nailbuff say that. Although it's hard to get used to the idea, sometimes the best way to succeed is to let others do well, including your competitors. Of course, you have to have wisdom to, to know, and prudence, careful, carefulness, how to approach that. Is prosperity something we'd per, we should pursue and pray for? Well, yes, of course. We've read this Psalm 34. Depart from evil and do good. Seek shalom and pursue it. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. This is our focus. Let's talk about the economic dimension now for a couple of minutes. The economic peace. Some issues arise when we try to separate the economic dimension from the others. 
other dimensions of shalom. Or when we uh, make the economic dimension dominant. And the scripture is pretty clear that there are limits to the economic. Of all the dimensions of shalom, physical, spiritual well-being, physical health, emotional health, social harmony, international peace, as much as, of all of those you can get, the better. No limits on all those things. But when it talks about the economic piece, now we talk about limits. Placing some limits. Yeah. When it comes to your profit and loss statement, the Sabbath is one of those limits. Where we forego 14.289% of the, the time resource available to generate revenue. We forego that. That's one of the structural limits placed on the economic dimension of Shalom. There's a reason for that, I believe. Yeah. If we don't limit the economic dimension of Shalom, it begins to grow and begins to dominate the others. Giving to charity also is a limit. One of the limits on our balance sheet of course, is the tithe. What do we do with our retained earnings, to use an accounting phrase here, accounting term, our retained earnings, which we normally would invest somewhere, right? This is the after-tax profits and stuff, right? Retained earnings. What do we do with this cash? Well, let's invest it somewhere, right? Make our business grow. Minus 10%. A limit on our investments. There's a limit to our cash flow also by helping those who are at the margins of society. Other ways to look at this, but clearly there are, there's a structural limit placed on the economic dimension. The economic dimension is intertwined with spiritual, physical, social, international. One might even say that it's, it might be impossible to experience all of these other dimensions without a certain level of economic welfare. Yeah. It's hard to have physical health if you're poor. Okay? Nations who are poor have a hard time with international and international relationships. Often subjected to unfair treatment and so forth. But let's flip it around and look at it the other way. Hmm. So without economic welfare, hard to experience these. But maybe these have a part to play in the development of economic welfare as well. These are all interrelated or intertwined in the scripture way of thinking. There are some things in Scripture, most of these are from the Proverbs, uh, that are explicitly described as being more important than the economic dimension of shalom. Truth. I wish we had a whole hour to talk about this concept, Hebrew concepts. It's one of those grand themes of Scripture. Faithfulness. It says in Proverbs 23:23, to buy truth, purchase truth, and don't sell it. Okay, so this is the only thing I've seen in Scripture that says this is what you ought to hoard. (laughs) Get a monopoly on this stuff, truth. 
buy as much of it as you can, don't give it up. Okay, so I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking what would happen in a society if as a, as a society we said, we are gonna champion faithfulness to our promises to each other. What could, how could that transform society, just that one thing? If we all hoarded faithfulness, wow, what a powerful transforming energy that would bring to society. Apparently, faithfulness increases in value. The more you have of it and the longer you use it and keep it. That's just amazing in terms of its power to transform a community. This is one of those, to me, it's one of those evidences of the communal dimension of prosperity. We're going to experience it when we champion faithfulness. Our reputation is worth more than money. Wisdom is prized more than cash. Knowledge, diligence, the covenant, the fear of the Lord, all of these things, righteousness, all of these things are described in Scripture as more valuable or more important than the economic dimension of shalom. Well, what does it mean to carry shalom into the marketplace? Well, I think we need to think about the the purpose of business itself. Why would I go into business? Well, the, the bigger, deeper purpose of going into business is to contribute something in my community or my marketplace for a flourishing life. This might direct my investment activities. Or as an entrepreneur, it might might shape the direction of where I develop a new business. For example, I I might say, well, there's there's a lot of products out there that are detracting from a flourishing life. Maybe I will focus on a business that actually contributes and counteracts the misery that comes from certain products and services let me focus on something that counteracts that. I can see the energy for, a, for that kind of a business flowing through the entire career of a person. This is what I'm working for in my business. I'm working to counteract misery. Wow, there's a, there's a pretty strong purpose. It's not just about the money. No, no, it's about contributing to flourishing life. Well, true prosperity involves all dimensions of shalom. Of course, we need to watch the economic dimension. Watch our financials, monthly financial statements. Uh, of course, yeah, right. If we let the finances get away from us and we lose control of the finances, we start losing the ability to contribute to a flourishing life in the community. Absolutely, yeah. On the other hand, if we let finances take over, and that's, that, that's our big focus, now we're forgetting or we're starting to diminish the emphasis on the other dimensions of shalom. Social harmony, well-being in all of its uh, beautiful uh, aspects. Business decisions that we make can contribute to the well-being or it can detract. I tell you, one of the hardest things I had to face with respect to this is the time when the organization I was... uh, um, chief executive of we, we had a major cash flow issue. It was a healthcare organization, and we had to make some choices. We're going to we keep down this pathway. We're going to close as a business, or we're going to lay off some people to preserve 
the ability of the organization to continue serving the community. And some of these ideas were going through my mind. How am I, how am I affecting the shalom of some of these families who are impacted directly by the layoff of one of their family members? I'm bringing economic chaos to them by laying them off, you know, at least for the short term. That was, a, that was a tough thing to do when you think about it. The shalom thinking, I think, will we'll go back in time and help the manager say, how can I prevent facing the day when I have to bring economic chaos to some families? What can I do? Now we, we don't have control over every dimension of the marketplace, of course. You know. um, by the way, when that day happened, we had to lay off a few people. The, um, the manager of one of the departments, well, she was very smart. She said, I'd like you to come when I tell the news. Yeah, whew, is right. <laughs> That's right. After sitting in that conversation, I realized how important it is for the top-level executive to be involved in that conversation. It'd be much easier to say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm busy. I've got an appointment outside the hospital. I can't be there. <laughs> you know, you, yes, your job, you take care of it, right? Whoa. That, that one event transformed my thinking uh, about the role of an executive and what, uh, what the executive decision makers need to, need to do before they face that kind of decision. In organizations, you know, I've been talking about the for-profit world, but you know, these apply to nonprofit and governmental organizations too, these principles. Some organizations need to have recovery brought for injustices. Yeah. There's an interesting book uh, by Lee Hardy called The Fabric of This World. It's written quite a while ago. Or the second half of his book, he talks about this restoration redemption process and how managers have a role to redeem fallen organizations, organizations that are hurting. And in some cases, that means to correct injustices. Well, we're to pursue prosperity not just for selfish purposes, but for the purpose of extending the life of shalom to others. Quick review, we've seen that prosperity in Scripture is multidimensional. Don't try to separate any one of those dimensions from the others. Okay? We like to do that in modern society. Right? Let's, let's analyze and study and get better at this one thing. And we'll specialize in that. But it's multidimensional. It's multigenerational. It's communal as well as individual. And when we think about the wealth dimension, there are limits to be placed. And there's an interdependence between the, the wealth dimension and the others as well. What kind of response or reaction do you have to these scriptural ideas? There, there may be a time when it does become the more important thing to, to preserve the economic. Might be. I think of a company called Acufab. We use this case in our MBA course called Integrating Faith and Business. Acufab, where the leaders um, were converted. They said, well, we've got to bring our Christianity now into our business. And they almost ran the thing into the dirt. Okay? 
started spending a lot of money on evangelism and giving books to all their customers and suppliers and da, 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 hiring chaplains. And I'm not throwing a stone against that. But when the economic situation around them had a downturn, whoa, it almost drove the company into the dirt. And they had to pull back from all of that and say, we've got to preserve this company's ability to serve the community. Yeah, taking one day and saying, we're, we're not going to continue pursuing acquisition. We're not going to keep on this train of always getting more stuff. We're going to say, okay, we're going to lay that aside. It's, it's, a, it's a recipe for to help build contentment. We're going to work hard. The commandment says, six days you shall what? You're going to labor. You're going to work hard, right? But we're going to also put a limit on this acquisition kind of focus. This gets pretty personal. Where are you with Shalom? To what degree are you committed to champion this element of God's character? Can you see yourself having conversations with other secular people, non-believers, in your marketplace? Not, Not religious conversation per se, but conversation about how important it is to champion flourishing in our community, and that this is something you have, your company is committed to. And you're seeking other people, other partners in your community, in your market to, to collaborate with, to promote flourishing. I believe you are, you are championing God's character just as much at that time, those, through those kinds of activities as when you have the opportunity to mention God by name and say, I believe in God, and here's my religious experience with Jesus Christ. Being a champion for shalom with others. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, this afternoon as we go from this room thinking about what you would have us do in business to build prosperity, not just the economic dimension, but true prosperity, in all of its richness. Give us the heart to commit to champion this wonderful idea of Shalom, your plan for this world, to to participate in that Shalom-building experience, I pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.